But the thing is that when people start believing, young people on our continent start believing in an American dream as opposed to an African dream, they don't they don't stay, they don't invest, it doesn't trigger creativity, they don't look at innovation, they look at ways to get out. They sit on the street corner trying to figure out how they can make a quick buck to get out instead of thinking, how can I build a lasting business here? That's what that narrative tells you. If that narrative tells you that, well, nothing going on in the continent, there's no reason for you to stay around, there's no hope, there's no African dream or Ugandan dream or Kenyan dream, everything's happening in the West. Welcome to Creativity Pioneers, a podcast by the Moleskine Foundation that aims to spark dialogues and reflections on how creativity is understood and talked about, showing us its use for positive personal and social transformation. I'm your host, Adam Asane, Moleskine Foundation CEO. Please subscribe now to our podcast on the platform of your choice and tune in for new episodes. I look forward to reading your thoughts and comments on our social media channels. I do believe that before living in the world, we live in the narrative of the world. Therefore, if we change the narrative, we can bring about some real change. This idea is embraced and implemented by Moki Makura, Executive Director of Africa No Filter, a donor collaborative organization focused on shifting the African narrative. Moki has an extensive experience in leading the communication departments of important foundations such as the African chapter of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, or the Tolly Lumero Foundation. On top of all this, she was a well-known TV presenter, producer, author, publisher, and successful entrepreneur. Moki has been at the forefront of mission-driven storytelling across many different fields. That, and much more, makes her a true creative pioneer. I love her quote when she says, when you start challenging people on story, people react. For today's conversation, she chooses three keywords, African, agencies, stories. Enjoy. Hey, Moki, how's it going? Fine, thank you, Adama. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for being here. And it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Look, let me start with this. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the thinking behind Africa No Filter? It's a culmination and it's like a natural endpoint for all the things I've done in the last sort of 20 years or more. Um, you know, just a little bit about what Africa No Filter is. We're essentially what you call a donor collaborative. I've got seven US, UK funders who've given us substantial funding to do this work, which is about trying to shift the way Africa thinks about itself and the way the world sees Africa. So it's about narrative change. And this whole area of narrative change in the US, it's quite a sophisticated, um, it's quite a sophisticated thing. There's a lot of research, there's a lot of work that looks at how, you know, how to shift narratives, narratives about, you know, I mean, there's a lot of work that goes on there, but there isn't a lot that goes on on the continent. There's a lot of talk on the continent. There's an awful lot of talk about, oh, we need to change the African narrative. But if you pulled out those people and said, what do you mean by that? And what do you actually do to change narrative or to shift the way people think about the continent? It'd be really difficult, hard pressed to find a solution for it. But that's exactly what African Filter is set up to try and do. How do you change narratives about a continent? Narratives that have been there for a very, very long time. I mean, the history of how we got to 
to to the way the world sees Africa. Um, it's it is the the history of this continent. So, and you don't change things overnight. So, what I've been doing since I came on board, and essentially this is a startup, is to figure out what are the key things that we can do that are achievable, because this is a hugely ambitious goal. I mean, even trying to change, you know, in America, they're trying to change the narrative around, you know, black people. That's one group. We're trying to change the narrative around a continent that's 54 different countries. That's like, you know, just, it's a huge number of, of different groups. Um, so yeah, so the stuff that I've been doing all my career is really trying to just let people know that there's another side to the side of Africa that most people think. You know, one of the things that we did quite earlier on, we did a literature review, looking at all the academic writing reports, um, sort of analysis on narratives about mm. Africa. And there was about 56 different documents we analyzed. And the, the things we found out that, you know, when people write or read about the continent, there's sort of five frames that most stories about Africa are written around. The first one is poverty, that normally when you read about Africa, there's always a poverty angle to it. The second one is poor leadership. If you think about the stories you read about our elections and, you know, leaders and all the, the stuff that goes on here, a lot of it is around that, you know, our leaders somehow quite, aren't quite there. Another big piece of it is the, the conflict. Often you'll read about conflict going on in the continent, even when you read about elections, it's electoral, you know, election conflict. And there's historical reasons for that. We are a huge number of different tribes all trying to get on. Um, another um, frame through which our stories are told is corruption. There's always some story that, you know, our ministers, our leaders have done something wrong or, you know, business dealings have failed. There's an element of corruption. And then the final one is one that I think is, is it has been growing and it's one that is perpetuated a lot by people trying to help Africa. And this is one of disease. That Africa is, 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 um, is a place where, you know, we need to increase the maternal mortality um, or reduce the maternal mortality. We've got to help HIV. We've got to fix TB. We've got to get rid of malaria. You know, putting all those stories out, and these donors who are working in this space, they're perpetuating that myth that actually this continent is just full of disease. You know, you hear about Ebola in DRC and you think, you know, me sitting in South Africa, I have Ebola. And it just paints, the, and all of these sort of framings sort of ladder up to one big problem with the way the narrative about Africa in that, Africa is one place, that it's one country. Um, and that's a huge challenge. But out of that, what we actually figured out was that there are three sort of narratives that I think sort of people think about, you know, because, you know, let me just say this bit and then I'll let you talk, but there's a difference between stories and narrative. And I think a lot of people confuse and conflate the two. Stories ladder up to narratives. And narratives are what you think about when you read a series of stories. So Adama, I could, you know, read three different stories about you. One, that you owe, owe money. B, that you beat up your girlfriend. C, that you stole money. The narrative about you is that you are dishonest, that you cannot be trusted, right? And based on that narrative, I will therefore do certain things. I will not, I will delete you from my phone book. I will, you know, refuse to deal with you. You know, it, the narratives inform my behavior because the narrative actually is how I interpret Adama based on the stories, different stories about you that I put together and I decided, you know, Adama cannot be trusted. Same thing about Africa. 
stories of poverty, of conflict, of, of corruption, of all of these things ladder up to three key things, three key narratives. The first is that Africans lack agency, that we have all of these problems and we can't seem to fix them ourselves. Africans are dependent. When we do want to fix things, we always put our hand up, we're waiting for somebody to come and help us. We need donor funding, we need this, we need investment, we need, you know, we're not doing this thing on our own. And the, and the third narrative that I think is the most worrying one is that somehow Africa's broken. It needs fixing. Everybody comes here with solutions to the so-called problems we have. And, you know, one of the most interesting things that I, um, I, I, I often say, because it really struck me one day, I was having um, dinner with a bunch of young, really interesting um, Ugandans. And one of them sort of said to me, he said that when he was younger, he grew up in poverty. But he said that he was happy when he was a child. He only realized he was poor when somebody told him he was poor. Mm. And again, that's the, 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 the power and the danger of narrative. They are now, you now start thinking, hold on a minute, I am poor because enough people have told me. Everything I read says that I'm poor. When I look at my life, the fact that I'm smiling, but I don't have a television, I don't have access to Netflix, and I don't have an iPhone, Therefore, I'm somehow disadvantaged. You know, the world has sold the world one vision of success. And that's a very middle class, very Western concept. You can be happy without, <laughs> without you know, running water. I mean, it's a damn pain. You can be happy without full-on electricity, without Netflix. You know, that's not the definition of happiness. But that narrative, because Africa doesn't have all of these things, therefore tells us that, you know, somehow we are less than, we are less than people in the West. And that's the danger of these narratives. And that's what Africa No Filter is trying, is trying to work on, that how do we introduce different stories that can ladder up to different narratives? Mm -hmm. And the one thing I do want to be clear about, Africa No Filter is really not about, it's not about um, good news on Africa. We're not saying that Africa has no challenges. Um, and I think that's important because it's about nuanced stories. You look at, you know, Zimbabwean lives matter. There's horrific things going on in Zimbabwe right now with, you know, journalists being thrown in. You know, if you look at the hashtag Lekki Massacre and the NSARS that's happening in Nigeria right now, that's horrific. Our police are killing young people. But you know what I realize? That I want these stories out there, not because it's sort of, you know, it's feeding that narrative of conflict or, or that framing of conflict, but what it is actually doing, it is challenging that narrative that Africans don't have agency because it is young Africans that are out there that are on the streets that shut down Lagos, that started that Zimbabwe's life, Lives Matter. Because typically people believe that, well, you know, Africans don't do anything. They just sit around. They're very resilient. You know, we can do things for them, at them. But this whole movement, all these, and I think a lot of it came out of two things. One, one was the global appeal of Black Lives Matter and COVID, the fact that there are people sitting around who are not doing anything. COVID has decimated economies on the continent. So African culture is really not about, you know, showing that Africa is great and everything's going well. It's more about presenting nuanced storylines that show that Africans, yes, they do have agency, that Africa is not necessarily broken and doesn't need fixing, and that we're not entirely dependent on rich countries in the West. I'm wondering though, 
where do you start from? But what I'm saying, where do you start from? Is narrative have this very um, strange double effect on the people who receive the, the narrative. So in this case, the, who create and receive the narrative that are West, the West in general. But then you have the people who receive and also create part of the narrative that is people in the continent. So there is kind of like this vicious cycle that is created because as you said before, then even people on the continent, you know, and I'm, I'm generalizing it, will get affected by the narrative that is created about the continent and vice versa. So there is kind of this vicious cycle. So I'm wondering, in your opinion, where do you start from to break this cycle? You know, I think the, the one thing that has become clear to me is that we have to define that narrative, right? You know, because there's no single narrative. It's not one. There's a multiplicity of different ones. But right now, it is being perpetrated and spread by people who are not us. And to give you a quick example of that, yesterday I was trying to figure out exactly what was happening in Nigeria, right? I'm sitting in South Africa, so I'm on the continent. The only thing I can do is go to CNN or the BBC to figure out. These are global news outlets who are reporting, you know, for an African audience, but primarily for a global audience who are not entirely Africans. And the thing is, I realized that watching them, they are defining how that story is told to the world. Mm. That's a lot of power. That is a lot of power. And Africans have to take that back. When I'm watching the news in the US, Americans are defining how that story is told. Fox News is defining how the story of Trump is being told. CNN is defining it. But these are US um, American platforms telling American stories. We need to get to that stage on the continent where we are able to tell our stories from the frames we want to generate the narratives we want and that we're not there yet. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. So when you say about stopping the cycle, you know, the way to stop the cycle, it's, it's, it's some of the things that Afghanistan Filter is trying to do. One is to try and disrupt where you see examples of harmful stories or harmful kind of um, narratives that really just don't reflect what's going on, or you see a story that's not nuanced or a story that's sort of feeding. I mean, and there's lots of examples and there's stuff that we've started doing on social media where we challenge some stories, some stories have been changed. So there's a role that we as African Filter want to play almost as a, as, a, as a watchdog for narrative because we feel there's a gap, there's an opportunity there. I think the other two areas where, you know, because we're essentially a grant maker is that we want to, um, you know, put more, funding in the hands of the storytellers. Because I think the challenge with us is that we don't have the money to build a BBC or a CNN. And that's why CNN is the one telling the story. That's why BBC actually breaks more stories of innovation and creativity than local um, stations, because they have the continent covered better than we do mm. as Africans. So it's really not a, a case of us and them, but I think one of the things is to try and strengthen media platforms, dissemination platforms, so that we actually have access to stories about the continent, about our countries, about our people that show innovation and creativity, and not wait for the BBC or the CNN to come and do it, because they've got a different agenda. They're telling hard news, and hard news seems to tend to revolve around bad elections, conflict, you know, all of the things that feed that harmful narrative. And that's what happens when you 
don't control the narrative. You have to control the narrative. So it's not about one narrative, but you need to control it. And we're not there yet. No, when we were discussing also previously about this, I was quite uh, fascinated about, you know, your journey, you know, your, your personal and professional journey. And I watched um, recently uh, your TED talk that you did a few years ago. And, uh, and at some point you said that in order to find your true purpose, you got to take something that makes you incredibly angry and combine it with something that you're uh, incredibly passionate about. And in the first... 10 minutes of this conversation, I can see both of them <laughs> very clearly, but I'm wondering where, where this passion and anger came from. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what, there was, there was a moment in time, which I remember really well. Um, I was in a cinema and I was watching Hotel Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And there was a scene in the film when, you know, things had gotten really bad and they were trying to get all the, all the foreigners out, all the Belgian people. So, helicopters came or planes came. I remember that people were fighting to get onto these planes, to get out. These were, you know, um, Rwandans as well. And rightly so, the Europeans took the Europeans out. And I remember there was a scene where, it, you know, these Africans were left behind. I mean, they were that wealthy Rwandans who wanted to get out. And I remember being so angry at the time in the cinema that we as Africans had created, okay, well, you could argue about who created the problem, the Hutus and Tutsis, but we had created that problem. It was black on black violence, black people killing black people. Yet we were still waiting for the international community to come and help us out. And that happens a lot, that we're always waiting for somebody to come and save us. It's almost as if we believe we cannot save ourselves. I got so angry because I remember thinking that why? Why, why, why is it only the Europeans? Why can't even Nigeria send something? Why, why? You know, that, that, that anger, I mean, I still feel it now because I remember leaving that cinema thinking that, you know what, we have to change the way we think about ourselves. We've got to start thinking that we are actually capable of creating change. And that's why when I look at what's happening in Nigeria with this, you know, NSARS, I'm like, yes, go out there and create change because we are the only ones who can do it. So that moment, I remember I came out of cinema, I was really angry. And then I had to do, um, it was like a, a course. It was a, um, what's it called, a coaching course. And you had to sort of coach yourself. And I got to the stage where I realized the one thing I did, I liked, I loved writing. I did, you know, I, I loved storytelling. And I realized that, you know what, the one thing you can do is start showing examples of people who are the antithesis of this narrative, change makers on the continent, people who are doing things, people who are not waiting to come and help them, people who are not sort of um, broken. So, yeah, I mean, one of the first things I did, I, I wrote a book, I wrote a book called Africa's Greatest Entrepreneurs, where I, I, you know, interviewed African entrepreneurs who I knew about them, but people didn't, you know, people thought that the world's greatest entrepreneurs were people like, you know, Richard Branson, and then, you know, Donald Trump at the time, we had really amazing entrepreneurs who were actually building businesses in much tougher environments than Richard Branson did, building businesses in Africa, with, you know, limited infrastructure, with limited, you know, um, funding. So you could learn from that. So I, you know, went around, you know, started interviewing. And I remember people would ask me, you know, why are you doing this? Who's paying you? How much money do you want? I'm like, no, I don't want money. I think that we need to put these stories out there because these people can inspire us as Africans to start seeing that, hey, I can do that. You know, if, you know, I mean, you know, like, let's say 
you know, who was in the book, you know, Wale Tinubu was in there. Like he's a Nigerian, he set up a business. You know, Reginald Mengi, who's unfortunately passed away, he set up a business in Tanzania. You know, these guys have amazing stories. And at the time when I did the book, business businessmen were kind of our heroes. You know, these were the people we looked up to because I think Africa was really about, you know, like if you're successful, definition of successful was financial success and business success. So that's why I started with them. But I realized quickly that I wasn't interested in entrepreneurs per se. I was interested in their stories. How did they get from, you know, where have they started to where have they ended up, where they were, you know, wealthy and they built a lasting business. They employed people, they created stuff because I think their stories were, I felt what were really important um, to inspire young people. So from there I went on, I did a series called Living It again, which is about lifestyles of wealthy people. That was the most fun I ever had in my life. I, I, I flew around the continent filming, you know, people who, again, had been successful, just had great stories to tell. Because at the time, often when you saw Africans on television, it was the African with the fly on the face, you know, the begging, you know, we're not, there's no money, there's a famine here, there's a flood here. And again, I'm not saying that that, that doesn't exist. Mm. It's not the only story of Africa. And there wasn't enough focus on bringing out these other stories. So that's, that's exactly, that film did that to me. That, you know, Hotel Rwanda, that's what I came out to do. You know what, you need to be deliberate about the kinds of stories you tell, why you tell them and the, the, the platforms you put them on. There hadn't been a series like that when I did that, um, I'm living it series that, you know, and people still write to me, oh, when are you gonna do it? There must be more than, you know, 12, you know, successful Africans, because it was a 12 part series on the continent. I'm like, well, you know, you go film them. You know, people have asked me to write another version of the book. No, you go write, but you know, I put it out there and in the hope that now there's just, there's more of that. At the time, there wasn't a lot of that going on. Wait, if we explore a little bit, like, cause he says something at the beginning about the relationship between, or the difference between stories and narratives. Um, and uh, we look at, uh, uh, you know, and the point is that even many positive stories might not necessarily change uh, the na narrative. And to a certain extent, you can also look at it the other way around. Many or some negative stories might not change the narrative. And, and when, you, when we take also, and we go in the diaspora and we say, for example, you know, something in the US considering like Black Lives Matter, you know, even the story of a Black president didn't translate into a change of a narrative. So how can we interpret all this? What else, what are the other forces that, that, you, that you see that can help changing that? Because we can put out many stories out there, but we're not necessarily, we can't necessarily ensure that the narrative will change. You, you know, I, I, I mean, Adama, you make a good point, you know, when you use the US president um, and that it didn't necessarily change the narrative. But I want to ask you, whose narrative do you think it changed? I think Obama being president may not have changed how white people thought about Africans or black people, but it certainly changed what black people thought about what they were capable of. Mm -hmm. The fact that there was a black person in the White House in America was incredibly inspiring for a lot of, of, of black people, even to this day. Even me, I remember when he came in the second time, 
And I was at a, you know, I was in a chemist in South Africa and I was really excited to hear that he'd just come in. And I remember the chemist who was white South African said, oh, you know, oh, American politics feels so distant, you know, so far away, America, why are you concerned? I said, I said, it's because he's black. It's mm-hmm. because he's black. So that narrative around black people, the audience for that actually was black people primarily, because I think to a certain extent, the narrative, we started believing that no, we, we can never get in there. We're not good enough. You know, white people are somehow better. You know, they're likely to be presidents, you know, and, and I will say that the work we are doing in Africa No Filter is actually targeted at Africans. I'm not trying to change what a Trump supporter or Trump, someone like Trump who calls us shithole countries, what they, what he thinks about Africa. There is not enough money in the world. But what we can do is influence the way we as Africans see ourselves because the challenge is the way Africans see themselves is the way the world sees themselves because the content we absorb, the things we see, if you think about, you know, movies, where the, you know, American action movies where the only real black character from Africa is the baddie, the corrupt person who's coming to, you know, take money out and is bribing people. That's what we see. And we take that in. And so do all the Americans, right? We, you know, African Filter, we actually um, uh, uh, commissioned or funded some research, um, University of Southern California to look at how Africa was depicted in the media in the US. Mm-hmm. There was very little, first of all, there was very little, um, um, you know, depicted. And they looked at entertainment media. They looked at some, it's analyzed them like 700,000 hours worth of television footage to see how Africa was depicted. There was very, very little mentioned about Africa. But when it was, it was typically as Africa, as one place, you know, it was like, oh, in Africa. It was usually flippant. It was typically negative. The place where we tended to get more coverage was in the news. And when it came to hard news, it tended to be about business or elections and things that were generally not positive. So Americans don't know a lot about Africa. And to be honest, it's not that I don't care what Americans think, but I don't think I can change what an American thinks about Africa. But I know that if we put these stories out, if we, if we, if we paint a more holistic picture about the continent, about its people, Africans themselves will be inspired and slowly over time, an American, a British person, an Italian might change the way they see Africans and the continent. But it's not one, it's not, you know, one story. And you know, this is why, you know, there's a bit of tagline, oh, we do it one story at a time. Um, and and just, just, just to give you an example, you know, I remember in my time, there was a series called Will and Grace, which I think they've come back for, for another, um, you know, like 10 years later. It's an old series. I and mean, I can't stand watching it now, but I loved it. But what that series did for gay people in that it normalized it. Will was, was gay, Grace was, was female, they lived together, and it just suddenly normalized what being gay was about. It's the first time on mainstream television that we saw that actually, you know what, gay people are not terrible people, you need to hide in a, a cover. You can be out there. And the reason why I use that is that one of the things that we have found out and we're trying to figure out how we can incorporate this more into our work is that pop culture is probably the most powerful way to change the way people think about issues, about other people. And, you know, and the one thing that we do know is that, um, what's that, uh, Black Panther, when it came out in 2018, 
Wakanda, this fictitious place in the Black Panther movie, was the most talked about country on Twitter the year that film came out. It was a fourth, sorry, not the most, it was the fourth most talked about country. And that just tells me that pop culture is such a powerful way of changing the way people think or, 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 or dominating what people think. If you could, you know, Wakanda, I mean, people were talking and tweeting more about Wakanda than they were about Nigeria, than mm. they were about Kenya, than, than Ethiopia. So I, I find it interesting that um, it's, pop culture is not something we typically fund. And if you look at filmmakers on the continent and you, you, know, you, you know about Nollywood, it's probably one of the least funded movie sectors in the world, mm. right? But it has a potential to change the way people see Nigerians, and it has. Let me tell you, as an African Nigerian sitting on the continent, when I go to places and they say, oh, you're Nigerian, then I act, I like that movie. There is a respect that other Africans have now for Nigerians because they've seen us in a different light. They see the houses and the cars and they're like, oh, so Nigeria is not that you know messed up place that they've been reading on, you know, in the international outlets that they follow because pop culture has just put a different face on it. And to me, that's how you change narrative. Pop, pop culture is a, is a powerful tool. But also I feel that another way to do it is to just give people evidence of its impact. It's like the way we, we're thinking about Black Lives Matter and white people are suddenly thinking, that hold on a minute, yeah, I've been hanging out with Black people for a long time, I've seen them. But it's only now that a lot more white people are actually understanding what it is to be black in America, to experience racism or unconscious bias where people don't even realize they're being racist or you know, with gender issues when people think, well, you know, oh, we mean there are not enough women on our board. Oh, okay, let's try and do something about it. Sometimes just putting it in front of people mm. is enough to create change because you get them thinking about it. And I think the same thing with narrative, that when you start challenging people on a story, the BBC took down a story because the headline was ridiculous, but they had to be challenged. The New York Post took down an advert they had looking for an East African correspondent because it was just a really badly written, stereotypical, nasty piece of copy looking for, for a journalist to write particular types of stories that they had already imagined. They took it down. They apologized. And the thing is that each time you pick it up, and that's the, the role of this um, watchdog that I think Africa No Filter could, you know, quite, um, is, is well set up to do. Just letting people know that, no, it's not okay, is, is just another way. And like I said, it's not one way of doing things, but there's a series of interventions, fund more people to tell more stories, use pop culture, you know, identify when people are, you know, lever, you know um, pushing the wrong na narrative. Um, and, and yeah, educate people. That narrative. That's why we're doing a lot of research because I think the more research you do, people understand it. Um, then it becomes a thing. It becomes salient, and then it becomes more interesting. You know, I'm wondering though, because there is something that being in a in a similar uh, sharing part of the mission that that you mm -hmm. have uh, as Moleskin Foundation. Uh, sometimes I'm mesmerized by uh, how often people don't necessarily understand why this is important in a sense that they almost take it often like as a almost as a matter of principle but narratives and stories has a direct impact on the life of people maybe can you tell us a little bit about this 
in which way, you know, changing the narrative can really impact the life of people and really changing our potential collective future. Okay, let me, let me um, talk about two examples, I think, that are, are pertinent to the continent. One is investment mm. into Africa, and the other is migration out of Africa. Mm. Now, I think these are two big issues that Africa grapples with, that we do need investment. We need, you know, organizations, companies, countries to come and, you know, invest in, in Africa, trade with us. The challenge is when people in the West, financiers, investors, you know, venture capitalists, read the stories that ladder up to those narratives. First of all, they are scared. They think they're gonna lose their money. They think that the place is corrupt. They think that the problems are so massive that you know what, this business can never work because they don't understand the environment. And if I would love, and I'm trying to figure out how we can, if we can see a correlation between narratives, what people believe about the continent and that direct impact on investment that money did not go through or the cost of this deal, where anywhere else in that world, in the world, that deal would have cost $100. But because it's in Africa, there's a premium. It now costs $5,000 instead of $100. There's a real cost. There's a real implication to narrative there. That's one. The other one that I, I mentioned was about migration. You know, there's well, I mean, the first thing is to dispel one one myth that most of the migrants outside, you know, in you know, going around the world are Africans. Actually, they're not. Um, I think Africa is the fifth, um, is the is is in the ranking of countries. Af any African country, the first African country is fifth on that list. It's it's Afghanistan. It's other countries that are not on the continent. But the thing is that when people start believing, young people on our continent start believing in an American dream as opposed to an African dream. They don't, they don't stay, they don't invest. It doesn't trigger creativity. They don't look at innovation. They look at ways to get out. They sit on the street corner trying to figure out how they can make a quick buck to get out instead of thinking, how can I build a lasting business here? That's what that narrative tells you. If that narrative tells you that, well, nothing going on on the continent, there's no reason for you to stay around, there's no hope, there's no African dream or Ugandan dream or Kenyan dream, everything's happening in the West. You don't build your own country up. You don't invest your own time, your own effort. You don't stimulate innovation. Um, you know, I, I remember <laughs> listening to this podcast and it was the guy who had invented or had started um, Google Translate. And he talked about how he'd done it. He was just playing around. He wasn't creating to solve a problem. He was creating because he could. And I often find that when people look at creativity on the continent, it's always about solving problems. You look at some of the biggest innovations we had, it wasn't necessarily solve a problem. Or tell me, what problem is Facebook solving? What problem was Twitter solving? What problem were all of these things solving? They were just creating and innovating. And out of that came solutions. Now, the challenge with, with Africa is that we come in with this problem mindset. We come in with the, there's something that's broken that needs to be fixed. And we immediately sort of, you know, put a very tight frame around creativity. You've got to come up with a solution to feed a, a million people. You've got to, you know, create around, you know, lifting people out of poverty. It destroys creativity. And that's because we have this problem, Africa is broken narrative in our head. You can't just be creative because you want to create a new Facebook. No, you've got to fix and feed the people. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm just saying that that mindset also stifles creativity.
on the continent because you're not allowing people to just create. We arrive almost as at the end of our conversation. Um, I would like to ask as a last point. As you know, we always ask uh, the guests to uh, propose three words that are connected to their idea of creativity and social change, their interpretation of their mission or their selves. And you choose three words that are African, agency, and stories. I think that we can see why you choose this word, but maybe to close, can you give us like a few words on each of them or why you choose them? Yeah, you know, I think just there's so, I mean, three words. The first word is, is African, because I think there's so much around social change movements that are pertinent to this continent that, you know, if, you, you know, if you're working in the social change space, there, there's so much in Africa that we need to move forward. You know, like the movements that are happening right now, you know, on the continent. And I think being an African, you're at the center of it. So we're, we're, and the world is looking for voices and doers, change makers from the global South. We're sitting in this space. I think it's a huge opportunity. So being an African right now, I, I don't think there's been a better time to be an African. The world is focused on us. We are the next opportunity. We've got this, well, some people say a ticking time bomb, you know, liability asset of, you know, a population of 800 million by 2050 young people. There's five countries with people who are under 15, 50% of, of, of five countries, their population, 50% of their population is under 15. You know, we've got this pool of people, talent of, of, of consumers, and we've got to figure out what to do with it. And so for me, being an African, it's, it's just a lot of space to do a lot of thinking. It's not like, oh, I'm Swiss, okay, we're going to go, go catch the train, go to work and come back. Anything can happen on the continent. There is just so much potential. So African, that's the one word. The second word is really um, agency. You know, I talked about this lack of agency and why I'm excited to see these movements that are happening um, in, you know, like I talked about the Nigeria one, there's one in Zimbabwe, there's one in, in Namibia right now. Um, there's the South Africa one, you know, gender-based violence. There's a lot of movements that happen that sort of came out of, you know, social media. And it's, it shows Africans have agency that we actually can dictate what the agenda is. That, you know, there was always this thing that young people are not political and young people are not political. They don't vote because they don't believe that vote, you know, voting, which is a traditional way people my generation have tried to elicit change. We know it doesn't work. In a lot of African countries, we know it doesn't work. So they're taking to social media now. They're creating movements. They are, they are expressing their political side in a different way. And people of my generation and political leaders have to get it and understand that. So th this sense of agency, I think, has been we've been empowered by the technology around us that you can create a movement all online. And some of the amazing stories I was hearing about how this... Um, you know, NSARS campaign started, like everything was online. People were sending money, Bitcoin, you know, just sending the money through different, you know, applications. They were organized. Everything was done online. No single leader. They never appointed a leader because typically when there's a leader, Nigerian government or whoever government will go and arrest that one person and shove them in the jail, end of story. There was not one single person because everything was done online. Right. So, you know, I, that that whole sense of agency, I can see the cleverness because that agency says, you know what, We're, there's hope for us. We have agency. We can dictate the future we want. And the last thing is stories. Stories are important because you've told stories. I've told stories. That's how we communicate. That's how we, we form opinions about each other. And I think without stories, then we're 
dealing with dry facts. And we know, we know that facts and data do not change behavior. Look at America, no matter how many lies, <laughs> and we can count, and CNN regularly counts how many lies Trump tells in a day. Doesn't matter. The point is they like the stories he tells, the story that he's managed to tell people that he is the person who can you know, make America great again. That's the power of storytelling. I mean, I don't want to end on Trump, but I think that you know, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stories that, that are still coming out of this continent. We just have to get better about telling them and we have to get better about making sure that they are in the right places. Because right now there is a lot of storytelling going on but we are not in those public spaces. And even to your point about the number of, you know, um, the number, amount of content on Wikipedia, which I still quote a lot, being less on African and, you know, and, and more on Paris. I mean, we've got to get our stuff in the right places. And, you know, so those words for me, storytelling, we've got to tell stories, got to get them out. That's really important. Got to have agency and we are African. That's the most important thing. We're in the right place. I like that. Thank you so much, Maki. That was great. Thank you very much, Adama, very much for your time, for giving me the platform. Thanks for listening to our new podcast, Creativity Pioneers. If you'd like to check out other episodes and know more about our mission, please visit moleskinfoundation.org. Keep on following this podcast and share your comments on Facebook and Instagram at Moleskin Foundation. Until next time, stay creative.